I'm very pleased to be joined today by Stephanie Honey to talk about past and current developments in digital trade policy in the Asia-Pacific region. Stephanie has recently contributed with a great chapter about this to a CEPR book. Stephanie was previously a trade negotiator for the New Zealand government and is now a trade policy consultant, associate director of the New Zealand International Business Forum and a policy advisor to the New Zealand members of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Business Advisory Council. She's also the co-founder of Global Trade Insights, a business offering executive education in trade policy. Stephanie, you're warmly welcome to this webinar. Thank you so much, Frederick. It's a real pleasure to be here today. So I want us to start this discussion by taking stock of the evolution of trade and digital policies up to now. The Asia-Pacific region hosts some of the world's most vibrant tech economies, and many of them are ahead of Europe and America in using modern dig digital technologies to change services and their deliveries. But is the new digital development also powering cross-border trade in the Asia-Pacific? I ask because there isn't exactly an abundance of clarity for outside observers which trade agreement that powers digital trade or certain parts of digital trade, or if they power digital trade at all. There are lots of various trade agreements in the region, and in the last years, we've also seen some recent ones like RCEP and CPTPP. What do they say about digital trade policy? Well, thanks, Frederick. That's a, a very good place to start and a lot of, uh, lot of questions to unpack there. I will say that it's, it's certainly been the case that in the earliest days of digital trade, it really flourished without a lot of intervention for good or ill, either enabling or, or restricting um, in those early days. And, you know, so you might think, well, what is this whole question of, of you know, economic governance for digital trade? all about if, if you know, it's, it's grown to this sort of behemoth without a lot of uh, trade policy um, guidance, as it were. But unfortunately, one of the other things that we've seen just as digital trade has grown in the Asia Pacific, but around the world as well, is that we're also starting to see trade restrictions. So it's really a case of sort of old wine and new bottles. I mean, we're, we're starting to see some of those same impulses towards protectionism and uh, a kind of trade restrictive measures justified on a whole range of certainly, uh, you know, on the face of them quite legitimate concerns, but also some cases of a kind of outright protectionism or, you know, the desire to sort of foster domestic economic development. So, you know, it is really a case of sort of business models and technology kind of outpacing the regulatory response. But unfortunately, now we're starting to see you know, in the words of Taylor Swift, regulators are going to regulate, and we're really seeing, you know, some very restrictive new policies being brought into, into force. And as well as that, another conundrum for this kind of trade is that a lot of policy responses are really being developed in silos. So in silos within economies, you know, different government departments might be regulating different parts of the digital economy, but also internationally you know there's no nice global rule book for digital trade that we're seeing um, people have gradually been evolving the way they approach digital trade regulation in a cross-border sense you know in the sort of the earliest days of this kind of I guess you could say policy conversation so back at the beginning of the century for instance 
there really weren't too many regulations on, on data flows, for example, and there really weren't many provisions on regulating digital trade either. In fact, uh, New Zealand was, was the author of one of the very earliest kinds of, of data regulation, which was in a bilateral comprehensive economic partnership deal that we did with Singapore. But subsequently, there's been this kind of gradual accretion of digital trade regulations in the region and more broadly, mostly focused on the sort of fundamental question of data flows. So how data is able to travel across borders, but also how whether data needs to be stored in a particular market. And the, the uh, kind of other part of that evolving picture, I guess, has been around facilitation of trade using digital tools. So the kind of digitally enabled goods trade has often also featured in trade agreements in the region. And underpinning all of it, of course, are some of the fundamental principles that are in the WTO agreements. I mean, there's this kind of ongoing debate about the extent to which the, the GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Services, already applies to digital trade. But certainly this very fundamental WTO principle of non-discrimination has also often featured in trade agreements. So I think, you know, probably from estimates I've seen, around half of the FTAs that were done from sort of 2000 to 2019 had at least some sort of digital provision. And then, I guess, a kind of culminating in the sort of model that, as you mentioned, CPTPP is, where there's quite a comprehensive e-commerce chapter that sets out those rules around data flows and data localization, but also some of the sort of digital trade facilitation rules as well. So with that template, I guess you could say, that has really formed the basis for quite a lot of digital trade policymaking in the region subsequently. So TPP and then, then CPTPP, but also USMCA, a Japan-US trade agreement, RCEP that you mentioned, although I'll come back to that, that's a superficially the same, but is actually rather, uh, you know, substantively different, and, and a bunch of other um, agreements in the Asia-Pacific, by which I mean the very sort of broad sweep from sort of Russia up in the north down to the South Pacific, where I am, um, and, and, you know, kind of both sides of the Pacific, so some of that sort of Latin American edge over to South, Southeast Asia and North Asia as well. So it's really been quite a hub of digital activity over these, these last couple of decades. Yeah, and, and to follow up on that, I mean, I imagine there must be problematic to try to form some type of agreement on sort of old digital issues or new digital issues, let alone any type of trade policy issue when you have such a variety of policies and countries in the region. The index that we did a few years ago on, on trade restrictiveness in for data and digital issues, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think New Zealand actually came out on top, while sort of the country <laughs> in the bottom was also a country in the Asia-Pacific region. So it's, it's a huge variety of policy choices that government has made when it comes to you know, not just about what you can do cross-border with digital, but also what you can do inside countries with, with digital. So how, how does that fit into sort of the, the, the pattern or the network of trade agreements that exist in, in, in the region now? Well, that's a great point because, you know, it prompts me to talk about one of the other things that I should have mentioned earlier, which is what are we talking about when we talk about digital trade? And I think that goes to the heart of the, the question that you've just asked me. Because, you know, at least superficially, I mean, clearly it's something to do with data and, and, and data flows. But, you know, where do you 
draw the line around where that ends. So, I mean, I think that obviously a very large part of what happens is to do with regulation of the domestic economy. So most of these things that we talk about as trade barriers are in fact regulations aimed at regulating digital activity in that economy rather than you know necessarily being targeted at cross-border activity as such. But you know there's there's a very live debate going on about what exactly we call digital trade. The OECD has done some fantastic work in this space looking at you know digitally enabled flows, whether digitally de delivered or um, you know digitally ordered or digitally delivered of goods and services. Um, you can actually make a case for a much broader definition than that, because of course there's a whole lot of digital activity that clearly creates value, but where there's no monetary transaction. I mean, you know, to quote, uh, paraphrase Richard Serra, you know, if you don't pay for the service, you know, you are the product. And so there's a lot of activity that happens in the digital economy where it's seemingly free, but in fact, you've paid for that with your, your private or your personal data. So, I mean, there's a sort of big question around how we define this, but then flowing from that, what constitutes a digital trade barrier? And, you know, how does that marry up with uh, the kind of, I guess you could say, orthodox trade policy concerns around, as I mentioned earlier, non-discrimination and so on, but also what's less trade restrictive in that context? How do we define um, when something tips over from being a sort of legitimate policy objective that's met in the least trade restrictive way into something beyond that. And so there's a lot of um, very interesting work going on. For instance, Susan Aronson has been doing a lot of work on is censorship and some of these other sort of, you know, disinformation concerns. Is that getting into the area of trade policy and so on? So the way that trade agreements have sought to approach that has largely been just to focus on the things that are most obviously digital trade. So as I said, uh, the kind of very clear-cut cases where there are restrictions on data flows or requirements to store data locally and the kind of digitally enabled goods trade. But I think over time, over these 20 years, let's say, of trade policy making in this digital arena, we're seeing policy starting to respond to really what's quite a rapidly evolving set of business models and technologies as well. So, I mean, in the early days, we didn't have things like the internet of things and AI and so on, but now they're increasingly coming into the trade conversation as well. Yeah, very good. And also, to, I mean, to your point about it, it may be difficult to talk about some of these issues, given that there isn't an immediate monetary transaction connecting to them. And if there isn't, you're basically the customer, you're the product if, if, you, if you don't pay for the service. I mean, I think another, another thing which I find quite interesting to, to see the development of is basically sort of how drivers of cross-border data flows in particular, but also of other forms of interactions across border in, in digital trade is very much driven by workplace integration and the fact that sort of we, we find network type of models to work with each other where we cross border with a lot of data that isn't directly part of any economic transaction we do is just sort of part of the normal way to to organize your work life these days and and of course that makes it even even more problematic to try to figure out sort of what is what what is a monetary driven data flow and what isn't but but one thing i wanted to come back to here is is so if i understand it then correctly so we have a network of trade agreements in the region right now, which are pretty sort of boilerplate organized towards basic trade-related issues. So we have non-discrimination issues, we have things on e-commerce, for instance, but they are not including 
newer type of issues and they, these issues may not be as new anymore but issues like for instance data privacy how do you find ways to organize data privacy regulations to avoid that they become a, a sort of a not not a trade barrier but at least become sort of a, a problem for anyone who wants to cross the border with with data is that a fair description of where we are right now it is and uh, i guess you could say that there are sort of very loosely speaking up until DEFA that we're going to talk about uh, later on, I guess you could say that there were three sort of major templates for the way digital trade has been regulated. So there's the CPTPP model, very much informed by the United States, which was of course then uh, part of those negotiations uh, when it was in, in its former, you know, the, the agreement formerly known as the TPP. And, uh, you know, very much driven by, I guess you could say the, the US's economic interests and trading and digital services so the, the the importance of of free flows of data except in cases of um legitimate uh, you know meeting le legitimate policy concerns and you know with that basic disposition of openness in digital across borders and in, in digital trade then there's a, a kind of another model in the asia pacific which is uh, you know and this is in very broad brush terms the kind of the china model very much, again, reflecting their own economic interests and, and I guess a kind of basic regulatory philosophy, you could say, of, um, you know, they're a very large domestic market. They're very focused on physical goods trade. So, you know, a big emphasis there, not on data flows, but very much on, you know, enablement of e-commerce, shall we say, if, if that's the kind of shorthand for the platform-based physical goods trade. And then the kind of third big model, which of course will be very familiar to your listeners today, um, is, is Europe's model, which is, has a much, I guess, a very different attitude to cross-border data flows. Um, you mentioned privacy. I mean, I think a lot of it is underpinned by this very fundamental belief in Europe of the, the value of privacy as a, a basic human right that has to be safeguarded. And so that has informed a lot of the way that European I guess you could say digital trade policy has developed. So GDPR, which has, you know, become a very significant normative model for, for how data flows are regulated around the world now. And I guess sort of less of an emphasis on the kind of export oriented, you know, US centric model. However, if, if you know, nothing's ever static in the world of trade. So I guess you could say we've got that, that basic tripolar world, but then there have been a couple of more recent developments that have kind of raise some sort of additional complications to that. So the first one is RCEP, um, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement. Very new, uh, the newest and the biggest FTA in the world. And, you know, it's, it's only just been signed. It's likely to enter into force for at least some of the participants at the beginning of next year. But it has a very interesting approach to trade policy in the digital space. Um, because at least superficially, it looks a lot like CPTPP, and that's not much of a surprise. A number of the participants are also CPTPP countries, um, seven, seven of the, the 15 are. And so it has the same basic model as CPTPP and looks very similar, in fact, when, it, when you read the data flows and data localization provisions. But unlike those, it has a very significant, I guess you could say, carve out of policy space when it comes to how data flows and data localization are regulated. So where CPTPP talks about 
the basic disposition being free flows of data, except um, where measures are, are necessary to meet a legitimate public policy objective. RCEP says that, in fact, it's a sort of self-determining decision by the individual participants what constitutes a legitimate measure, which allows them to derogate from that free data flow. And also, you know, in, in cases where the party themselves considers that there's a, a national security issue, they're also able essentially to have carte blanche. So in essence, it's saying the disposition is free flows, except if I don't want it to be. And, you know, that is really quite a significant missed opportunity, I think, for the region. You know, RCEP is the biggest trade deal. It's a third of the world's population. It's about 30% of global GDP, a little bit less than that global trade. And so, you know, it's, it's a shame that it wasn't up to the same sort of pro-trade, you know, kind of model as, as CPTPP. But I'm not entirely pessimistic about it because I do think that one of the really key things in policymaking and digital trade is the fact that it's changing really rapidly. Policymakers, and no disrespect to the incredible negotiators who um, have worked on these agreements and may, may be listening to this call, but, you know, policymakers come to this with a kind of a an analog mindset, if you like. I mean, uh, as a former policy uh, trade negotiator myself, you know, it's you're steeped in, I guess, a kind of a, a more conventional goods trade or services trade outlook, and, and digital trade is really quite different. So there are a lot of things about the way digital trade is regulated, the impacts, the evolving business models that the trade negotiators don't fully understand. And so I think, you know, it's really important to have a kind of responsive trade policy one that's grounded in a really very live engagement with the business community and the tech sector to understand the implications of these, these you know, new ways of doing business across borders. And so at least in that sense, RCEP, um, you know, maybe doesn't go quite as far as, as, you know, you might want it to, but it certainly creates a platform for a conversation. And, you know, there's a lot of institutional architecture in that agreement that's about talking about these issues and reviewing where things are at. And, you know, that's a very sort of classic ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations way of doing things. They, they kind of come back and back to issues. So, you know, I'm, I'm not totally pessimistic about it. I think there's a, there's a chance that as, as we learn more about the way digital trade works, um, they can come back to that. And from the business community then, what, what, what are they mostly complaining about when it comes to the existing rules or the existing agreements when it comes to openness to trade? I mean, are they are they sort of focused more on sort of core digital trade-related issues, sort of platforms and, and what goes on there? Or is it more about sort of how, you know, digitalization is changing the entire economy and you see sort of industries and companies that perhaps are not, uh, at least not directly defined as being sort of digital-oriented digital companies, um, is, is it their concerns that mainly come up? Well, that's a very interesting question. And I do a lot of work with businesses and, and various guises and uh, business councils and so on. And, uh, you know, I think, I mean, there are so many different elements of this to unpack. So let, let me try and, and uh, remember all of them. But I think the first thing is that for a lot of businesses, you know, business finds a way, no matter what regulators do, there are always sort of innovations and uh, sort of new models and so on. And I mean, that's very classic 
tech sector mindset and behavior as well. You know, they're about solving problems. They're about being creative and innovating and, and never standing still. So I do think we will see evolution of the way business is done digitally across borders. But it's also the case that those companies, whether they're in the tech sector or more conventional businesses, what we used to sort of think of as the, the old economy, so manufacturing or even agriculture, you know, those businesses are starting to innovate in the way that they use these digital tools or, or use data and, and so on. I mean, there's really no business in the world that I think is not touched by you know, digital tools, being able to become more efficient and productive, using sort of back office digital services and so on, even if they don't think of themselves as participating in the digital economy, they are probably using cross-border data flows in some way to, to run their businesses. So I think it's really important for policymakers to talk to business, and it's got to be a kind of two-way flow, because the other irony in all of this, at least in my experience, maybe New Zealand businesses are a bit different, but... Um, you know, often you start even companies in the tech sector by saying, well, you're an exporter of, of services and, you know, that there's just no trade policy lens that businesses are seeing their activities through. You know, there's often a kind of a education sounds a, a little bit, um, you know, patronizing, but, you know, there's a there's a way of thinking about these activities that's not immediately familiar to many businesses. So that's the first thing. I think there's a real challenge for trade negotiators and policymakers to engage much more closely with businesses when they're designing these policies. The second thing is that thanks to COVID, if we can thank COVID for anything, there has been this incredibly rapid digitalization of all businesses, of the, the landscape that of you know the way we're living, the fact that I'm able to do this call with you, you know, from the other side of the planet. So Businesses need to be digitalized, and there's a really big challenge in many parts of the world. There's this sort of digital divide at the national economy level where some countries just are not plugged into the digital economy. But even within wealthy, you know, uh, advanced economies like New Zealand, we still have lots of small businesses in particular that don't have a website and, and don't really see the need for, you know, digital media or, or, or anything like that. So there's a big challenge for domestic policymakers too, to kind of upskill their, their businesses to participate in the digital economy and with all the sort of benefits and, and you know, policy gains and productivity and efficiency gains and so on that that can have. And because it's become an imperative as well. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine what life would have been like for the last year and a half through COVID if we hadn't had things like digitalized border processes that help trade to keep flowing, you know, Zooms to be able to work remotely and, and so on. So, you know, I think it's it's potentially incredibly powerful, but it does require a good engagement with business to understand the implications of, of what's happening. Actually, Frederick, just, just yeah. to mention, uh, you, you did also ask me, what are the concerns of the business community? And I think that that's rather an interesting question too, because from work that um, I've been involved with in the APEC context, the Asia-Pacific um, Economic Cooperation Forum and, and the Business Council that I work with, um, you know, we've done quite a bit of research on how businesses actually see these digital trade barriers. And often they come up with things that aren't necessarily what a, a kind of a trade negotiator or a policy expert might, might see as a particular problem. So, I mean, certainly those issues around data flows and and as you mentioned, privacy or, or other sort of 
justifications for restricting data flows like cybersecurity and so on are definitely a concern. Although having said that, you know, the, the agenda for business isn't a deregulatory one. They want some guide rules around what's, you know, appropriate sort of approaches to these issues. Because, of course, it enables their sort of social license to operate as well. They want their customers to trust them. They want to be able to trust other businesses. All of those issues are really important. But a really big concern that business raises is around the very sort of, I guess you could say to, to quote Bhagwati's sort of spaghetti bowl illusion, the kind of digital noodle bowl that we're seeing, particularly in the Asia Pacific, where there are these silos of different kinds of policy making, different trade agreements, different rules on different elements of digital trade. You know, it's a very confusing picture if you're an exporter and it's not immediately obvious in many cases who your market is, where you're exporting to, where your consumers are because of the nature of digital trade. So, you know, I think there's a very strong case as well for streamlining trade rules globally in this space if we want to sort of realize the full potential of it for business. All right, so let's uh, move to two new addition to that spaghetti bowl of agreements that Bhagwati has talked about. And we're going to talk a little bit about new initiatives in the Asia-Pacific, and in particular, two of them. So in your very interesting chapters to the book that I mentioned initially, you write about digital trade policy innovation in the Asia-Pacific, and you cover especially two new agreements, the Digital Economy Agreement between Australia and Singapore, and the Digital Economy Partnership Agreement between Chile, New Zealand and Singapore. So what's new in them or what's the innovation they have brought to the network of agreements that already exist? Well, they're actually innovative in quite a number of ways. You know, I am a great cheerleader for, for DEPA in particular. And, uh, you know, I think if you've, you've read my paper, you, you would see that because I think it's really a, a very interesting and creative and clever way of looking at this very fragmented, complex uh, spaghetti bowl of digital trade regulation and trying to, I guess, design a building block that, you know, can, can serve as a sort of model to others. So the innovations that you asked me about, I mean, there are, there are quite a few. Um, I guess the, the most fundamental of them is the conceptualization that the agreement has of what we're talking about. So I, I, at the beginning, I talked about how do we define this thing? What are we talking about when we talk about digital trade or digital trade barriers? Well, what DEPA does is basically looks at the intersection between trade and the digital economy. So it's not even really about digital trade, however you might define it. It's what's the interplay between this sort of cross-border economic activity in the economy that is increasingly digitalized. So, I mean, I think that's quite a fundamental difference of view. And it flowing from that is, you know, a number of different ways that the agreement is structured and who's in it, who's, um, you know, and, and what it tries to achieve. So, I mean, I think to give some context, it was, uh, you know, sort of it's, it's start predated COVID, but it's very much a product of the kind of crazy last year and a half we've had. I think, you know, it's particularly apt that it was the first international trade deal that was signed entirely 
you know, virtually in an online signing ceremony. Uh, so that was in the middle of last year. And of course, negotiated through the, the sort of terrible medium of Zoom as well. No, no disrespect to Zoom, but you know, it's uh, kind of not quite the same as eyeballing your, your fellow negotiators across a, a table and then having a friendly cup of coffee afterwards. But essentially those three small, nimble, open Asia-Pacific economies got together and said, you know, how do we make this spaghetti bowl or this noodle bowl, you know, a, a simpler prospect for our, for our economies and for our businesses. And I should also say that there are three economies where there are not, you know, unicorns, we're not the home to massive digital e-commerce platforms or digital services providers, um, we don't have huge populations. Um, so, you know, it's really quite a sort of an example of very creative, nimble, responsive policy making. And it, it's actually a model that New Zealand in particular and, and Singapore have used before. So I guess you could say it's kind of the same approach that, that has led to the CPTPP agreement. So, uh, you know, that started, I guess, if you wanted to trace its origins right back to that New Zealand-Singapore FTA that I mentioned uh, earlier in, in our conversation back in 2000, which gradually grew, bringing on board Chile and Brunei, and then sort of expanded progressively from about uh, sort of 2006 onwards to become eventually the, the CPTPP agreement. So this idea that you can start small and, and grow something that's really quite a significant sort of global model. Um, so that's one innovation. The second innovation, I guess, is in terms of its scope and ambition. So in some of the core areas like data flows, Deeper really takes the CPTPP model, not a surprise because all three of the participants are, are also parties to CPTPP. And in those core data flow and data localization provisions, it simply reaffirms those rules. But in a number of areas, it goes quite a bit further. So one example would be on paperless trade, where it really takes what was already quite an ambitious model in CPTPP and really amplifies that learns the lessons of the last few years and sets out, you know, very ambitious sort of gold standard rules, if you like, to facilitate um, paperless trade. So that's in things like electronic trade documents, um, you know, electronic certificates, electronic bills of lading and so on. All those things that help trade to actually work through the pandemic are, are what, you know, the, these three countries want to sort of nail down as the, the basic default for cross-border trade. So in some areas, it goes a lot further. But then the other innovation is that it brings in a whole bunch of new areas, which aren't really at first blush even about trade at all. They certainly haven't been in, in any of those preceding trade agreements. So things like emerging technologies, AI, for instance, digital identities, some of those sort of competition issues. So, you know, one of the, the big challenges in the digital economy is all of the, the competition issues, you know, these business models behave rather differently to our more sort of traditional understanding of how competition works. We've got platforms, for instance, that a lot of small businesses find, you know, quite a sort of an easy path to market, but quite challenging in a sort of market dominant sense. So there are some of those issues included. But as well as that, the, the agreement's very much located in its sort of, I guess you could say, socioeconomic context. So there's a big emphasis in both the DEPA and the DEA on some of the issues around uh, sort of progressive sort of values-based trades. So there are provisions on inclusion, for instance, on small businesses and how to enable their participation in the digital economy 
in the, the deeper chapter on inclusion, there's a reference to, for instance, indigenous populations for New Zealand. You know, we want to enable sort of Maori economic development and women who are, you know, sort of often at a kind of disadvantage in international trade because they're often running small businesses and there are a number of sort of structural impediments to their full, full sort of economic potential and so you know there's there's a real emphasis on enabling women as well and overall I guess you could say it's really trying to situate trade in the sort of context of how do we make our sort of whole economy work in the way that we wanted to to create the kind of you know society that we want to live in and in one area in particular which is online safety and, and sort of online harm for instance the DEA um, really goes into quite a lot of detail about how that's an area that, uh, you know, needs to be addressed um, through a sort of trade lens and, and sets out a kind of collaborative for doing that. Speaking of collaboration, that's also an incredibly strong feature of these agreements. So in some areas, there's binding hard law, data flows, for instance, but in quite a lot, particularly of these sort of newer issues that haven't really been part of trade agreements to date, there's not a lot of a kind of concrete detail. Now, on the face of it, you might say, well, that's a, a failing or a criticism of these agreements. But actually, I think, you know, uh, to use a, a nice little tech analogy, it's not a bug, it's actually a feature. Because as I said earlier, you know, a lot of these policy areas and technologies are actually changing, you know, kind of as, as we watch. And it's really not, they're not ripe for binding policy rules um, in a number of areas or, or we don't fully understand how to regulate them in a way that actually meets the objectives we might we might want to set. So in a lot of the newer areas, um, both DEPA and DEA have this really strong flavour of collaborative policy making, engagement, cooperation, sort of co-designing new policies and, you know, staying very responsive and nimble. Structurally as well, for instance, in DEPA, um, there's a joint committee, a sort of an institutional structure that's set up, which is obviously mandated to sort of implement the agreement, but also to keep under review other ways to enhance the, the digital partnership, um, to bring new issues into it. So, I mean, you could imagine there are other emerging technologies which aren't specifically mentioned there, you know, whether blockchain or the Internet of Things or 3D printing, or, you know, additive manufacturing, a whole bunch of areas that are clearly going to be either traded or have an impact on trade where you could foresee that, you know, we will want to put in place some sort of policy guardrails or, or trade rules, but they're not quite right for that yet. So Deeper really creates a platform for that to happen. And then the last area that's really quite innovative I think is there's a huge focus on both standards and interoperability. So, you know, in traditional trade policy, of course, those concepts are not unfamiliar. I mean, standards, you know, there's key to, to goods trade. Um, interoperability is, is a very well understood concept. You know, mutual recognition uh, arrangements are, are very familiar in the sort of analog trade world as well. But what these provisions in these two agreements try to do is essentially bake that into the way that we're designing trade rules. So for digital trade to work well, you need standards, systems, regulations, policies, really to kind of work together to create a seamless cross-border environment. And unfortunately, at all of those layers, we're seeing fragmentation, 
divergent approaches, sometimes good approaches in each case, but not necessarily in a way that's kind of mutually compatible. So there's a very strong flavour and emphasis on building in interoperability. A lot of the collaborative work is designed on the idea that the economies involved should try to be making their systems work together. They should be trying to have a regulatory environment that allows different systems to perform equally validly and you know also sort of technical mechanisms so APIs for instance to allow different fintech uh, products to talk to each other so that's a really uh, you know fundamental part of the way that you know this these agreements are trying to design digital trade rules. That's very interesting and I was thinking about what you came into towards the end on the sort of standards formulation and how you make standards to become in interoperable across different countries. So how is that going to work in practice in this agreement? Is it, is it sort of a more focus on the formulation of regulations and sort of finding ways to avoid at least significant divergence between these countries at that stage? And of course, that would make sense if we're talking about new issues where regulations aren't already in place or where regulators still are considering what type of regulations that should be used, for instance, on artificial intelligence? Or is it more of a focus on sort of already existing standards and, and basically finding ways to make them, you know, edge out sort of the idiosyncrasies of each country's already existing regulations and find ways to make them more compatible with each other? Well, that's a, a really interesting and quite complex question because you know, as, as in the world of goods, a lot of the standards that are set are, are kind of, um, you know, being led by private standard setting bodies, even more so in the tech world. I, I think, you know, there are a number of sort of essentially tech sector led standard setting fora that design the basic building blocks of these digital models. Um, so for instance, around blockchain and so on, a lot of those standards are being developed, um, you know, in, in that sort of context. As well as that, though, we have the sort of more traditional actors like ISO and so on. Um, so there's clearly a big body of work that's needed to try to, you know, ensure that to the fullest extent possible, we have internationally recognised and, and sort of internationally designed standards at the technical level. But then when we get to the kind of the regulatory and legal layers, you know, there are some good international reference points there. So the UN, for instance, has designed model laws on a number of aspects of the digital economy. Uh, you know, sort of, I guess, the most relevant one in the deeper context is the UN model law on electronically transferable records. And, you know, there's a very explicit reference to that and is sort of a best endeavours basis for, for countries to adopt that as their, their model for, you know, acceptance of electronic documents essentially and um, you know having those sorts of things interoperate is, is really critical because one of the experiences that we've had you know New Zealand's a big goods exporter obviously our agriculture all the way and and one of the experiences that New Zealand exporters had during the pandemic has been that they weren't able to get paper documentation endorsed or you know in it for instance, you know, health sanitary certificates, consularized, so approved by the sort of local embassy has, has been valid, which was a, an impediment to those otherwise perfectly fine, you know, goods trade flows to happen. So the obvious solution there is to use electronic documents. But in, in some cases, even where customs authorities might want to accept electronic versions of 
what were formerly paper documents, they weren't sort of legally allowed to, or that the regulations didn't allow them to, you know, sort of accept those, which is just kind of a, a very perverse outcome. Equally, we've seen the sort of flip side of that, where countries and the sort of the eye of the storm through the pandemic were able to accept those electronic certificates or electronic documents, but then have kind of reverted back to their, their bad old ways subsequently. So, you know, you can see that there's a lot of flex in, in the way the sort of interoperability picture happens. But, you know, there are a number of quite interesting approaches in the deeper about how to cross that, that sort of different model of, you know, how things might be regulated. So one example would be, for instance, on digital identities a very, very new area where a lot of countries have started to develop their own domestic approaches, but, you know, certainly not in a uniform way, even, even in the Asia Pacific. And so, uh, you know, Singapore, for instance, has a centralised national digital identity scheme. New Zealand is still in the process of refining its approach, but it is going to be a decentralised model. And, and, you know, there's a, a very sort of sophisticated trust framework that's being developed right now on that. So how do we make these two very different regulatory systems interoperate? Because, you know, the payoff would be if businesses had digital identities, it would incredibly, you know, it would streamline a lot of cross-border processes. It would have higher, you know, sort of integrity and, and verification and authenticity. It would help with, you know, cross-border financial transactions, sort of, you know, your customer requirements would be, you know, a snip. So there is a good kind of commercial reason to make these systems talk to each other, but how do we do that? So what Deepa says is, well, we need to have a conversation about how we can design our systems to work together with a sort of eventual, you know, the light on the hill being a mutual recognition of, of the two systems, but at least in the interim, recognising that across all those layers of sort of standards, policy, regulation, user adoption, we need to make sure that the systems can talk to each other in a way that facilitates trade. And, you know, you can see that in a number of other areas on, on fintech, for instance, um, similar sort of approach. And on AI that you mentioned, you know, my goodness, that's a very complex issue, the idea that you might get a model that for, for governance or for ethics in AI that would be equally as comfortable to the United States, to China, to the EU, to New Zealand, you know, um, it's, it's a very complex picture. But what the deeper says is, we recognise there's a need for this, you know, there's a high chance, even through the sort of the trade lens of unintended consequences, of biases, of perverse outcomes, of, you know, distortion trade flows from this. And so we need to actually work on how we can, uh, you know, sort of develop our approaches in that area in a collaborative way. And the deeper sets out a number of sort of core principles and what, what should go into a good governance framework for AI, things like, uh, you know, transparency and, and, um, and so on. All right, very good. So let's talk a little bit about sort of moving on from DEPA, perhaps internationalizing this particular approach. I mean, are there, are there ambitions in the region to use this as a platform to connect other countries to it? Or is it more of a standalone agreement between three countries that are, as you said, pretty open already, pretty nimble, wants to sort of uh, do a lot more to and make sure they can pro prosper on the back of digitalization. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's always good to be in the tent designing trade rules, but then also for other people to, to join you there. And that's very much the philosophy of DEPA. So it was deliberately designed to be 
obviously, you know, a, a wonderful, you know, model example, but also very much as a building block. So structurally, deeper has quite an unusual structure as well. It's got 16 modules, which are mostly sort of organised along thematic lines. So around the trust environment or innovation or inclusion. And the idea is that, you know, with those core modules, I mean, book ended, of course, with a preamble, some sort of final provisions around setting up the institutional structure, quite a laundry list of exceptions as well. But, but the sort of core substantive provisions are designed to be essentially model modules that others could could pluck out. I mean, if they particularly like the look of, uh, you know, e-invoicing or digital identities, they could take those sections and apply them to their own FTAs. But also, I think very consciously, with a view to the, the WTO Joint Statement Initiative negotiations on e-commerce, the idea that we as sort of three nimble, open, very trade-engaged, sort of good global citizens, New Zealand, Singapore and Chile, could design some good approaches to things like paperless trade or spam, which is one of the one of the areas that the WTO has been able to to reach agreement on. You know, you could take the deeper model and and use that as a basis in the WTO. So there's that aspect to it. But beyond that, it's also intended and indeed actively sort of encouraged that it would be you know joined in toto by other countries. And you know, I'm delighted to say that in fact. To date, even though it's it's really a very new agreement, you know, only just over sort of a year old and it's sort of only enforced for six months or so, it has already attracted the attention of two other potential um, accession countries. So both Canada and Korea have indicated that they'd be interested in taking a, you know, kind of serious look. They've both undertaken a little bit of public consultation on it. So, you know, I mean, obviously there's a, there's a pretty live, process underway there, um, both in those economies, but also for the three deeper parties. I should also note that um, Chile is still actually in the process of ratifying the deeper itself, so it hasn't uh, quite, quite got that across the line yet. So, you know, there's, there's a kind of quite a, a variable kind of uh, geometry going on there in terms of expanding. But I guess the, the ultimate dream would be that a little bit like the process that led to the CPTPP, we see a sort of gradual accretion of enthusiasts for, for this agreement. And who knows, eventually, maybe the EU or, or other, you know, I guess sort of other obvious candidates would be other CPTPP economies or others in the Asia Pacific. And certainly since the DEPA and then the DEA, which I'll, I'll talk about in a second, we are now, you know, Singapore in particular is very active and, you know, it's sort of taken this model and really run with it. So it's also separately talking to Korea about a, a kind of a digital economy agreement. It's done a separate one with Australia. You know, I know that there have been, there's the UK is quite interested. So there's a kind of a, I guess you could say a bit of a, a snowball started small and, and kind of building up to a sort of bigger level of momentum. So that, that's a really exciting potential, I would say, for DEPA. When it comes to DEA, it's a, a slightly different proposition. So both agreements look quite similar. You know, if you, if you sort of just list out the topics that they cover, this incredible panoply of sort of new issues, emerging technology, innovation, open government data, all of those things, you know, both are very ambitious in that space. But where DEPA is an open plurilateral, you know, we're, we're actively seeking countries to join, the DEA is in fact a kind of closed set. 
that's in, it's not in any way a sort of stumbling block to broader outcomes, but it's very much a bilateral deal between those two economies. In fact, it's actually an amendment to the original Singapore-Australia FTA. Um, it's just uh, called the Digital Economy Agreement. So that has enabled it to go quite a bit further in substantive terms on some of those areas. So for instance, digital identities I mentioned, there's a separate MOU on digital identities associated with the, the Australia-Singapore Digital Economy Agreement that gets into quite considerable you know, granular detail about how the interoperability should work, very much a process towards achieving mutual recognition of digital identity systems and so on, which of course is you know, a feasible thing to do when you've just got two parties negotiating for themselves. Because DEPA is trying to provide a platform for a kind of broader conversation and, and broader accessions, it hasn't gone quite so far. So both great. I mean, there are things I think in DEA that DEPA could learn from and, and vice versa. I guess my dream would be that we'd see the sort of triangulation of all those trade deals, Australia joining, Korea joining, rather than going off and doing their own separate deals. Because of course, as I mentioned, one of the big conundrums for business is around this digital noodle bowl. We don't actually, even if individual agreements are great, we don't actually really want a whole raft of slightly different new digital agreements in the region. You know, fundamentally digital trade is borderless, you know, cloud computing knows no boundaries. So let's design policy and rules that will respond to that. So when you're looking then at the evolution of either DEPA or any other type of agreement of similar kind and, and how it may expand, you mentioned Korea and Canada to be two potential candidates. I imagine at some point, and this is also a question that comes from the audience, that there may be a few tensions that relate to the fact that America may want to be sort of involved in this type of digital trade policy formulation and China may want to be involved in it as well. And they come sort of with two different models, two different approaches to these issues. And of course, many other countries in the region are following, broadly speaking, more of a, a US style type of model on, on some of these regulations. So what do you see? Are there, are there risks sort of that you're going to get a sort of a stronger fracturing of digital trade, digital trade policy, and not just the policy, but perhaps also in actual cross-border integration between businesses and consumers? Are there risks about sort of splinternet type of developments with uh, two very, very different approaches to what you can do on the internet, what type of rules that apply? So how do you sort of look at this development towards the future? Do you, do, you, do you see sort of more conflict or do you see more opportunity for for bridging the type of regulatory differences that we've seen between especially sort of an, an American style approach and a China style approach? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a really great question. And I think we have certainly seen an evolution of the US position. I mean, there's very clearly a, a strong emphasis on sort of enforcement these days in a way that we perhaps didn't see before. I, I know that the US and Europe have just set up this Trade and Technology Council as well, so there's clearly quite a, a live conversation going on there. I do think that perhaps the RCEP model is, is kind of perhaps where things might end up, because of course China is in that model, but equally it reflects a very strong flavour of this sort of, I guess you could say, US template, the, the CPTPP template. But, you know, I think 
it would be very unfortunate if we do end up going down that path. I mean, there are some very strong economic forces at play here, a kind of, um, you know, perhaps a more inward looking uh, domestic economy focused China, for instance, less concerned with a sort of digital exports compared to, say, the United States. But equally, you know, I think just technically digital trade doesn't confine itself to, you know, nice national boundaries. I mean, cloud computing is global. The, you know, individual little packets of information are out there, not, you know, confined to one, one country of the world. So I think, you know, there's going to be definitely a tension between what policymakers want, want to achieve, that, that splinternet idea, as you said, and, uh, you know, what technically or technologically is actually happening. But I think, you know, one thing that is really, you know, sort of top of mind for New Zealand this year is that New Zealand is chairing the APEC Forum, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. And, you know, that is a potentially very powerful conversation because it does bring in quite a lot of these, you know, in this multipolar world, it brings in the United States, China, Russia, a number of countries that might be more aligned to one or other of those kind of policy approaches, plus the innovative, creative, small, you know, clever thinkers like New Zealand and, and Singapore and Chile. So, you know, I certainly hope that in the APEC context, we can use that. It's sometimes the acronym is, is uh, you know, sort of wittily translated as a perfect excuse for a conversation. And I do think it's really important to keep talking about these issues, just as an asset, you know, having the platform, the, the sort of institutional framework to keep talking is really important. And of course, Although the EU does have a very different approach to things like privacy regulation, you know, it has been able to agree a deal with Japan, for instance, which is a very much front and centre in the, the CPTPP world. Uh, New Zealand's currently negotiating with them. I, I don't have any insights of what the digital chapter might look like, but, you know, I certainly would hope that as part of that, the EU and, and the UK and others are looking very closely at the kind of model that DEPA offers and the way to essentially facilitate trade in the way that we can, even if there are some areas of policy space that perhaps are, you know, going to be a, a little bit of a harder nut to crack over time. We are getting very close towards the end, Stephanie. Just one final question before we are going to close this webinar. Some of you may have also already noticed that I have asked um, quite a lot of questions that have come from the audience, and that is also what I'm going to do in this final question, which is around the interplay between what you're doing in the Asia-Pacific region now and what can happen at the level of the World Trade Organization. So taking the example of telecommunication services, so we have an old agreement that is already pretty outdated. Many companies are confronted with problems around discrimination, transparency in, in procurement, etc. And some of these problems have been also highlighted more recently in some Asian countries. So moving forward from where you are right now, I mean, do you see a development going up to the level of the WHO directly? You mentioned some of that previously, or are we in the process where we first need to accumulate a lot more bottom-up developments with smaller agreements, with an expansion of DEPA or similar DEPA type of agreements that are going to emerge in other parts of the world before we get to the point where we can have a meaningful conversation at the global level? Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, you know, I, I am a big fan of the, the JSI on e-commerce. I think it's a really important initiative. After COVID, you know, the landscape is 
inevitably much more digitalized and I think we do need good global rules that that kind of try to strip out some of the impediments to the extent that it can. So I, I do think efforts to try to find global rules in this area are really important. That said, I know it's very slow going. I mean, it's, you know, they've, they've agreed some language on spam. That's great. But there's quite a big digital economy out there that, that also could do with some rules. So I guess it's going to be a slow process. I mean, I think there's obviously a much bigger question around what will happen at MC12 and the extent to which we can get some substantive movement on any of those uh, sort of either JSIs or, or issues across the board. But I do think there's a, a really strong case to prioritise e-commerce. I mean, digital is driving everything to do with trade these days. Let's try to make it work in the way that we can, but also to draw those lessons, as you say, from the sort of bottom up, the deeper models, understanding, you know, kind of where the points of friction actually are for businesses and perhaps, you know, prioritizing progress in those areas, things that will actually sort of shift the dial in a way, even if some of those sort of much bigger, more fundamental questions are going to, you know, take a longer time to go through the sort of expectations management and, and understanding and process. I mean, the WTO, of course, has a very fine tradition of taking a long time to get to outcomes, which then kind of stand the test of time, as indeed, you know, I mean, the internet was really only a gleam in the eye back in the days of, of the, the GATS and, and the WTO agreements. But, you know, to the extent that it's been able to regulate digital trade, that has actually been incredibly prescient and, and, and served us quite well. So. I think it's worth putting in the effort. I guess there's a sort of bigger question around the appetite for sort of multilateral outcomes, but I, I you know, I, I hope we can get it there because it really does matter. All right. Thank you very much, Stephanie. This has been a very joyful and enlightening conversation. I've learned a lot about uh, developments in the Asia Pacific region now and all the interesting evolution that takes place with, with digital trade policy there. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm.